and we turn to Psalm 119, the prose version. And can we read a portion there for our text this morning? Psalm 119, and we're going to read that portion that we just sung from verse 129. Psalm 119 at verse 129, let us read God's word. Thy testimonies are wonderful, therefore doth my soul keep them. The entrance of thy words giveth light, it giveth understanding unto the simple. I opened my mouth and panted, and I longed for thy commandments. Look thou upon me, and be merciful unto me, as thou usest to do unto those that love thy name. Order my steps in thy words, and let not any iniquity have dominion over me. Deliver me from the oppression of man, so will I keep thy precepts. Make thy face to shine upon thy servant, and teach me thy statutes. Rivers of water run down mine eyes, because they keep not thy law. Amen. And may the Lord bless the public reading of his word to us this morning. Our text will be found there then in verse 136, Psalm 119, at verse 136, where the psalmist says, Rivers of water run down mine eyes, because they keep not thy law. Rivers of water run down mine eyes, because they keep not thy law. Christian, is this your experience? Minister, is this your experience? This was the experience of the psalmist. This should be the experience of every believer. The title I want to give to our meditation this morning is The Weeping Christian. The Weeping Christian. Are there any weeping Christians? Maybe you wept when you were brought to acknowledge the Lord. That happens. Many Christians can testify that when they first closed in with Christ, they had tears, and more than likely, they were tears of joy. And what a joy it is to be a Christian. Yes, we know and will not deny it or hide it that there are difficulties in the Christian life, but over and above all the, the difficulties, and even through all these difficulties, there is a joy that the Christian knows, and it never departs from him. He has this joy. And what is the joy founded upon? It's founded upon the fact that he is reconciled to God. He may be estranged from his, from his wife, from, his, from her husband, 
from children, from family, from neighbours, from friends. Things may well have changed because that person has become a Christian. And these are difficult things for flesh and blood to encounter and to live with. But nevertheless, there is joy. And very often that joy is expressed in tears. Oh, to think that God has saved me. We read about the demoniac. What a life he had. Wasn't a terrible life. Wasn't it just like an existence? He was under the thraldom of these devils. What happened? He had an encounter with the Lord Jesus. What happened? His life was changed wonderfully. He was a new man, a new mind, a new life, a new purpose. And the people who knew him before were afraid. And they wanted Jesus to depart from their coasts. But this man, having had this glorious experience of his life being changed upside down wonderfully, what did he want to do? He wanted to go with the Lord Jesus and he wanted to work alongside the Lord Jesus. He wanted to be involved in the ministry. He wanted to be up and open about his profession and he wanted to do whatever he could to extend the kingdom and to extend the gospel and to bring others to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus that they might share in the joy that he had. What does Jesus say to him? Well, we just read it. How be it? Jesus suffered him not, but saith unto him, Go to thy friends, and tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee, and hath had compassion on thee. And he departed, and began to publish in Decapolis how great things Jesus had done for him, And all men did marvel. This psalm, we've looked at it some time ago, but this psalm is all about God's word. And it's all about how the psalmist cherishes the word of God. He loves it. You don't need to be a theologian to realize that. If you read the word, this word, the psalm, you will know. It's all about how the psalmist delights in the law of God, his judgments, his testimonies, his precepts. He is taken up with God's word. And we find here, because he loves the law of God, he has two concerns. Two concerns. What are these two concerns? First of all, from our text, he says, Rivers of water run down mine eyes, because they keep not thy law. He is concerned for God's glory. This is what motivates and inspires the psalmist above everything. He is concerned for the glory of God, and he sees many people rushing headlong into eternity, despising the word of God and taking no care or thought about it. And as a result, they're going to perish. So there there we have his two concerns. For the glory of God, 
and he has concern, he has compassion for those who keep not God's word. This is what he says. Rivers of water run down mine eyes. Why? Because they keep not thy law. Who are they? They are quite simply unbelievers. And before we press this, this matter home to the Christians among us today, I want to appeal to the unbelievers. Are you one of those they who keep not his law? What is it to keep his law? Well, ultimately, friends, if we're not in Christ, if we're not seeking the Lord Jesus Christ, if he's not our Lord and Savior, if we're not following him, if we're not recognizing him as the great mediator and Savior whom God has sent, then we are not keeping his law and we are not keeping his gospel. And the psalmist, if he was alive today, would would have tears running down his face for you. Because they keep not thy law. And therefore we must, must ask ourselves, are we keeping the law? Are we keeping God's word? What is God's word? God's word is repent and believe the gospel. God's word is receive Christ as he freely offered to you in the gospel today. God's word is turn from your sins and call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's his word. That's his gospel. That's the essence of the, of the message from heaven that we find in the Bible. And this is what you are commanded to do for God commands all men everywhere to repent. And there are no exceptions to that commandment. But here we are. Most of us will be professing Christians. Most of us will know the, something of the joy of conversion and of union with Christ. We're not strangers to these blessings and privileges and what privileges they are. And maybe we have been following the Lord Jesus for the best part of our lives and maybe... I use this term in a human sense. Maybe the gospel has lost its sparkle. And we're no longer enticed by it. We're no longer exalted. We no longer appreciate it like we should. Men, women, those who are in Christ. It's a glorious thing to be saved. It's a glorious thing to be reconciled to God it took Christ, it took the Son of God to come from heaven and undertake everything that was required to save us. For without him where we were lost and perishing, we had no hope in this world. Do we, do we disdain it? Do we think lightly of it? No, friends, this is our chiefest joy that one came to save us. And he died for you, Christian. Well, if we're Christians, we should love the Word of God. And we should have a concern for God's glory. And coupled with that, 
we should have a compassion for the lost, for those who do not know the Savior, <clears throat> for those that keep not his law and are perishing in their own transgressions. Perishing, oblivious, on that broad road that leads to destruction, going into an eternity of endless torment. Do we really believe these things? Let's ask ourselves, do we really believe that someone, when they die Christless, that they immediately meet God? And what happens the moment their breath is taken from them? They meet God and they're judged. Not the final judgment. We might say it is the initial judgment. And if they die Christless at that initial judgment, their soul goes immediately to hell. And they await that day of the general resurrection and the judgment when their body and soul shall go into hell forever and forever and forever without any mercy. Do we really believe that? Minister, do you really believe that? Oh, you can talk about it. You can read about it. You can think about it. But do you actually believe it? Friends, if we really believe this... Would it surprise us that there's tears running down our faces? You know, Christ wept over Jerusalem. Christ is our righteousness. Christ is the one who has saved us. And we rely entirely upon his righteousness. But Christian, never forget, however impossible the ideal might seem to be, Christ is your pattern. You are to walk in the steps of Christ, not to earn your salvation. No, your salvation has been secured by the righteousness of Christ, and his righteousness has been imputed unto you, and you cannot add to that, and you cannot take it away from it. But nevertheless, you, are, you are, are obliged to walk in his footsteps. In other words, your life is to be patterned along the life of Christ. And the more you look at the life of Christ, you'll see it's an impossible ideal. Nevertheless, you are to strive to attain to live a life like Christ lived. If you think about the time when he went to Jerusalem, what happened? The final time he went into Jerusalem, where they're not all crying, Hosanna, Hosanna. Were they not putting branches on the, on the road? Was there not a great time of joy and exuberance? Were they not delighted to welcome their king? Jesus did not stop this. But you know, with his mind... He was looking at Jerusalem and not long after the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, what do we find the Lord Jesus Christ doing? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that stonest the prophets. He cried over Jerusalem. The whole of Jerusalem was, 
was delighted in the fact that their Messiah had come. We know that did not last long. We know it changed once they were hailing him as king. And soon they began to say, crucify him, crucify him. We know that is true. But for a period, for a time, for a short season, they were delighted to welcome him. But he cried over them. Why? Because he knew their destruction was coming. And here Jesus wept over Jerusalem. This is to be our pattern. This is the way it's to be for the Christian. We are to be conformed to Christ. His heart, his emotions were fully affected for those who were disobedient, who kept not the law of God. We have examples in the Bible, other believers, believers like ourselves who were sinful, yet they showed a great love and care and concern for the lost. You think of Lot. Many people regard Lot as not being an ideal example. We can debate about that if you want on another occasion, but the Bible calls him righteous. And if he's righteous, then he's righteous in the sight of God. But even Lot, with all his faults and with all his failings, was vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. He saw terrible things in Sodom and Gomorrah. And his whole spirit, his whole being was vexed when he saw their conversation. That wasn't talking about what they spoke. That will be part of it. But conversation here means their lifestyle. And he was vexed when he saw what was going on. It affected righteous Lot. And it should affect us, friends, in our society today. When we see people plunging themselves into sin and ultimately into a lost eternity, are we unmoved? Abraham, great Abraham, a friend of God, did he not intercede for Sodom and Gomorrah? Why did he intercede? Was he simply going through the motions? No, his heart was involved in it. He saw the glory of God. And he had a care and a concern for it. And he saw people lost and perishing. Moses, meek Moses, he's another example we could cite. He was up in the mountain. The law was given to him. The two tables of stone written by the finger of God. What were the people doing down at the base they were involved in idolatry and reveling. Moses comes down. What does he do? He fell down before the Lord. He interceded for the people. Why? Because he was concerned about God's glory and the fact that his people had behaved in such a despicable manner. He wasn't cold. He wasn't indifferent. It wasn't a matter of fact with him. Oh, well, that's it. They deserve what they get. No. He was concerned about them. Samuel also, when judgment was, was, was about to come upon the king Saul, 
He was concerned for King Saul. He interceded for them, for him. Even Ezra. We're maybe not too familiar with Ezra, but when the exiles come home and when they sinned, he prayed for them. He was concerned for them. Our psalmist here, rivers of water ran down mine eyes. And did you notice, friends, in verse 134 there, what does David say? Deliver me from the oppression of man. David was one who was being oppressed by wicked men. Did he care for them? Yes, he cared for them. He cared for them because rivers of water ran down mine eyes. Because these wicked men who were persecuting him and giving him trials and difficulties in this world, yet he prayed for them and he had compassion on them. He didn't say they get what they deserve. No. Surely, therefore, the psalmist was like his Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. What we're outlining here, friends, should certainly be the mark of a minister. This should characterize a minister. He should have a care and a concern. And it should be the mark of office bearers. And to a, a lesser extent, it should also be a, a mark of every professing Christian. We cannot escape this. This is not just for the elite or the office bearers or those who are up front. It should mark us all. Some time ago during the lockdown, we looked at the prophet Joel. In chapter 2, verse 17, he says this, Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep between the porch and the altar, and let them say, Spare thy people, O Lord, and give not thine heritage to reproach, that the heathen should rule over them. Weep between the porch and the altar. Tears for the prophet. This is what he calls he calls the priests, those who minister in the sanctuary, in the, in the tabernacle and in the temple. They're to look upon the situation. They're to see the, the problems and the difficulties that are facing God's people. And they're to weep between the porch and the altar. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. He was a man of steel in many ways. He went forth and he declared God's word. It was not found favorable in his day. And many wanted to hear the word of God. But when they heard it, they did not obey it. Nevertheless, he was faithful. You might think he was cold. You might think he was somewhat indifferent. You might think that he simply delivered a message and then he washed his hands off them. He had been faithful to his duty. No, nothing could be further from the truth. In Jeremiah 13, verse 17, we read, But if ye will not heed it, my soul shall weep in secret places for your pride. And mine eye shall weep sore, and run down with tears 
because the Lord's flock is carried away captive. Jeremiah was telling the people, judgment's going to come, terrible judgment, Nebuchadnezzar's going to come, Jerusalem's going to be destroyed, the temple's going to be destroyed, and the people are going to be carried away captive. This was his message, the basic message. They wouldn't heed it. Did he say, oh, well, that's it, I'm finished, I've done my work? No, he would pray for them and he would weep in secret over them. This is exactly what the psalmist is talking about. This is the kind of compassion that should be found in every single Christian. Everyone who has experienced the grace, the mercy, the love of God also wants others to know that same experience. We could quote the Apostle Paul. Paul is often regarded as a hard, austere theologian. He was full of compassion for the lost, for the perishing. What does it say in Romans chapter 9? At the beginning, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. That's not an easy passage to interpret. But you certainly get the drift of what Paul is seeking to pass on to the Romans. He would want that his people, the Israelites, who had rejected the Messiah, that they too would come to a living and a lively faith in Christ. That they would no longer reject him. That's certainly what he's saying. Where he says, for I could wish that myself were accursed. That's a difficult one. Is he saying that he would wish to be lost in order that they might be saved? We cannot really believe that. But you get the drift of what he's saying. He is not someone who is simply delivering a message and then, well... If they believe, they believe. If they do not, then, well, God will deal with them. No. The Apostle Paul knew this rivers of water running down mine eyes. We looked at Corinthians some time ago. We know he had difficulties there. It was a difficult congregation, and many of them did not really appreciate him and value him. And he had a difficult time establishing his authority. But what he says, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote unto you with many tears. When he was writing the epistles, and when he was saying difficult things to them as he was trying to discipline them, it was with tears. A theologian with tears, friends. A pastor with tears. A Christian with tears. The weeping Christian. Where are they today? It 
if we know nothing of this, we need to look at ourselves. Because in this, we are not being conformed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And very often, if we lack this, it is because of hardness and of pride. Hardness and pride. We need to call upon the living God that he might change us. That we would have this spirit. That there would be a real concern for the lost. We are not to be self-satisfied in our salvation. Oh yes, we are to joy in it. We are to be thankful. We are to be grateful for it. Yes, of course. But there must be this element of reaching out unto others. And have you any, therefore, have you any concern for the lost and perishing? Ask yourself, minister, I have to ask myself because you can be involved in evangelism and outreach and you may not have any concern for the lost at all. Maybe two or three years ago, a visitor came to this congregation one Sabbath evening. He was a young man. He was directed to this congregation because of our outreach. He spoke briefly at the door to me. He wanted to get involved. Of course, we wouldn't necessarily let a person whom we really don't know anything about help us in our evangelism and our outreach. But what he said to me was, and I'm paraphrasing it, he said to me, I love to argue. I have, a, I have the arguments. The unbelievers will come forth with their arguments and I can meet them. I can dispel their arguments. We're not here to argue. Yes, we should have our arguments to present. Yes, we should be able to defend the gospel. And if someone asks a question, we should be able to answer them and to give a reason for the hope that was within us. But we're not there to argue. Very often you can win your argument and you can lose the person. And therefore, don't think for one moment that just because you're involved in evangelism and outreach, that necessarily you are like this person here, rivers of water run down mine eyes. You might just like the cut and the thrust of evangelism. It's something more that's required. What is it that is required in us? It is to love people. That's what we are to be. We are obviously to be concerned with the glory of God, yes. But that's coupled with a real deep desire and love for perishing sinners. Peter tells us, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you 
with meekness and fear. That's what's required. Not a love of arguing, of debate, of pressing forward your your reasons. Some people may well engage in evangelism because they want to strengthen the congregation or they might want to strengthen the, the denomination. That's not why we get involved in evangelism. It is in order that God might be glorified and that sinners might be saved. This is what is to motivate us. Are we then concerned? Do we know anything of this experience of the psalmist? Rivers of water run down mine eyes because they keep not thy law. You know, we might well pray for conversions. And that's good. Because it may be the only thing that someone can do. I'm thinking maybe about those who are listening who are housebound. Very limited in what they can do. But if they pray, who can tell? But if we are ones who pray for conversions and we do nothing to actively promote promote conversions, then it is hypocrisy. If we have opportunities to speak to people and we don't take it after praying for conversions, something's not quite right. If we pray for conversions and God gives us opportunities, as he will in his providence, that we might be able to speak a word in season, then we are to grasp these opportunities. You know, the Lord said on many occasions, watch and pray. Now, watch doesn't mean sit and do nothing. Watch means to be active. We all know what pray means. Pray is quite clear. We call upon God in prayer. We, we recognize our weakness and we recognize the sovereignty of God in all matters. And we pray that he would help us and he would provide opportunities. But we are to watch also. We are to be careful. We are to make use of every opportunity. Watch and pray. This man who we read about earlier, knowing the wonderful change in his life, he wanted to reach out. He didn't even have a family, it would seem. When he wanted to reach out and to be with Jesus, Jesus said, Suffered him not, but saith unto him, Go home to thy friends. We can all do something. We might not have family. We might not have family nearby. We're not excused. Go home to thy friends and tell them 
how great things the Lord hath done for thee. You might think, here is the minister then, trying to round up support for his outreach. That's not the case at all. But we all have a responsibility. And every Christian is to have a concern for the glory of God and a compassionate regard for wretched sinners who are perishing in their own transgressions. We're all different. We all have different talents, different graces, strengths and weaknesses. But the very essence of this message is that if we have no care or no concern at all for those who are perishing, the likelihood is that we're not saved ourselves. Now that's a very probing thought. We're not all like the Apostle Paul. He was obviously a man who was given a commission. We're not like David. We're not like the others that we mentioned. But we are to be like Jesus Christ. He had a care and a concern. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do, even as they were crucifying him. We need to know this. And maybe you are saying, well, this is kind of strange to me. I don't really have this care and concern. Cry out to the Lord that he give it to you. You may well be a Christian. And yet... You cannot enter into the experience of the psalmist. Cry out to the, to the God of the psalmist that he might give you this care, this concern. That all of us might be weeping Christians.